Well, welcome, Valley family, to the conclusion of a series that we've really been in over the last two months uh, in the book of James. This has been a verse-by-verse account that we as a church family have gone through, taking a look at what is really one of the shorter books of the Bible, only five chapters. This is the ninth and concluding message in our series. And I think I speak for all the pastors who have taken part in this message series. Dr. Greg, of course, and Pastor Jamie, and Pastor Stephen, when I say we could easily keep going. Uh, this, this message series, this book of James, is just chock full of practical and applicable wisdom. Not always easy to hear, but I'm confident as we as a church uh, continue to listen and apply, and by all means, if anybody has missed any of these uh, eight previous messages, I encourage you to go to our website at valleychristianchurch.net and catch up, because I'm confident that God is uncovering this as, as individuals for us in the Valley family and as a church to look, look more and act more like uh, his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For those who may not know me, my name is Andy Salino, and I'm currently the campus pastor at our Valley Poughkeepsie location uh, at the Regal Cinemas in the Poughkeepsie Galleria. And our family's been there serving uh, since uh, back in Easter, and we are just so appreciative of the opportunity that Dr. Greg has given us uh, and an amazing team of volunteers to impact the area, the Poughkeepsie area, uh, for Jesus Christ. Now, uh, and I'm also honored to be here today filling in for Dr. Greg as, as he and Pastor Susie are enjoying Parents Weekend with their girls in, in, at Liberty University. Uh, I've entitled the, the, the title of this message is A Pastor's Heart. And after all, we've learned from previous messages uh, in this series that James was a pastor of the Jerusalem church. And I love the way James speaks, uh, obviously very boldly and, and maybe sometimes not always easy to hear, but he gives it to us. Uh, he puts it right between the eyes sometimes. And he's given us in past uh, weeks, we've taken a look at really, you know, bold and sober warnings about uh, the dangers of playing favorites, um, about the need to watch our words and to tame our tongue. And last week, I dare say, probably the most forceful language, Dr. Greg walked us through James's account of the need to be generous. Um, but today, to conclude this message series, what's on the heart of of this pastor, Pastor James, to his church, the Jerusalem church, and what's on the heart of him 2,000 years ago to his church, and what's on the heart of, of us today, all the pastors here at Valley, and really any pastor that's worth his or her salt, is the people. What's, what's on the thoughts and hearts and minds of, of James as he concludes this letter uh, are the people. And, and after all, pastors love people. Um, pastors think about people a lot. Um, yeah, occasionally we may think about other things. Like me, for example, I may occasionally think about something like this. Um, exactly when will the New York Mets blow it? <laughs> you know, every once in a while that thought as a Met fan creeps into my mind because every year the Mets open their hand and as a Met fan I willingly put my heart into that hand. And, and every year, sooner or later, usually sooner, the Mets just squeeze my heart and they twist it like that. But this year, they have kept their hand open, and the promise of October baseball is here. So, so it's just ingrained in us that we just don't know when they're going to blow it, but we're hopeful. It happens once every 15, 20 years, so we'll take it when we can get it. Occasionally, I think about things like that, but for the most part, pastors on this staff and any pastor worth his or her salt goes to bed at night and wakes up in the morning thinking about people. Now here at Valley Christian Church, we have more than a thousand people that call this church their home. 
and with uh, four gatherings and two locations and almost 300 people involved in community groups, there's a lot of things going on. And it's the job of the pastor, uh, the responsibility of the pastor to, to survey the landscape and to ask the question, what's going on? What's going on here? What's going on there? And to see where we are as a church family and where, we're, where we want to go. Uh, another word for pastor is shepherd. And in the, the, the role of the job of shepherd was common in the writing of scripture. And that's really what shepherds did. They looked at the flock, they scanned the landscape, and they said, where are the sheep? Where are they going? What are they doing? And, and who's, who's in the flock and who may be going off uh, on their own? Um, but James is writing this to us because really um, he's writing it to believers. And Pastor James has, has people on his heart because really... Um, this is not just the role of pastors. This is really the role of everyone. We've heard Dr. Greg in the past uh, say to us that the office of pastor, the title of pastor, only appears twice in the whole Bible. So really this is, we're all pastors. Moms and dads, you know what I'm saying, right? You, you're, you scan your family, this child, that child, where are they? Where are they going and where, where do we want them to go? This is really the responsibility that James is encouraging us and God is expecting all of us uh, to, to do. And, and so I want to look at our time together and the verses that we have remaining in James from this perspective. I want us to look at it and think like this. Not everyone will become a pastor, but everyone should have the heart of a pastor. What James does in these final verses is he, he illuminates five questions and five answers. And I want us to take our time tonight and look at those questions and answers from that perspective. Maybe not everyone's going to be called to be a pastor, but everyone should have the heart of a pastor because this really does describe all of us. So let's jump in. The first question is this. Are you suffering? In, in verse 13a, James says, are any of you suffering hardships? He tells us that we should pray. Now here, suffering can be uh, any kind of suffering, really. It can be physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, financial suffering, relational suffering. What do we do when we're suffering? Well, what we can do, what we tend to do is, is act in harmful ways. We can lash out. We can try to push it down, shove down our suffering. We can ignore it and hope that it's going to go away. We can self-medicate it. We can uh, doubt God. We can ignore God. We can try to exalt ourselves over God to be God and conquer our own suffering on our own. And in all these possibilities, James encourages us to do, encourages us to do one thing, to pray. We've often said throughout the course of this series that James is like Proverbs for the New Testament. And in the context of this question of suffering, what I'd like us to do is to look at the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms is a great place to see this. Psalms is a collection of songs and prayers and entries, really, that are coming from people who are going through, in the most cases, great difficulty. The Psalms are very heartfelt and very passionate prayers, primarily born out of suffering, and out of mourning. We tend not to know what to do with our suffering, and as a result, we don't tend to suffer very well. It might sound like a strange statement. Who wants to suffer at all, much less suffer very well? But what I mean by that is this. We tend to suffer very personally, and very privately, and very painfully. We don't tend to open up our suffering publicly. I don't mean take a bullhorn on the mountaintop and scream our suffering to everyone, but James is encouraging us uh, as, as like-minded believers, that we need each other. We need to put our faith in action. And, and as we look at this question and the remaining questions, that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at these questions not just as ones that we ask 
to ourselves, but that, we, we, that, that come from ourselves to those around us, to those that we know, to those that we love. That's what J Pastor James is encouraging us to do. So we don't tend to open up our suffering to anyone. We tend to put a face on and a smile on, and outside we're happy and inside we're dying. And James is encouraging us to open up first to God, go to God first, pray to God first, but then to each other. And, and, and he says it in John chapter 16, verses 30, verse 33. Here on earth, there will be many trials and sorrows, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is not an if, but a when. It really encompasses all of us. James tells us, with our suffering, to pray. Prayer is a central theme of the Bible, certainly, and it's a central theme of the verses that we're looking at today. The word prayer appears in almost every one of the verses that we're going to look at tonight. The previous series to James, you recall, was teach us to pray. It was purposely chosen, and it was there to help us realize that prayer is an action. Prayer is an action. In our prayer, our suffering, our pain, our heartbreak, just like what we read in the collection of the Psalms, is being released to the Lord through our suffering. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This is an action. Prayer is an action, and like-minded person to like-minded person. He's speaking to brothers and uh, sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. This is something that we're called to do with each other and further encouragement for us who are suffering to reach out and to open up. Jesus showed us this most poignantly in the garden. He was, very, he was anguished, he was suffering mentally and emotionally and spiritually, and at the cross that was before him soon was gonna be suffering physically, very painfully. The Bible accounts for us that Jesus was in such distress and suffering at the cross that was before him to pay, to atone for the sins of humanity, your sins and my sins, that the Bible says he was actually sweating drops of blood. And in that state, what did he do? He prayed. He took Peter, James, and John with him in the garden, and he told them, stay alert, pray, and I'm going to go off and pray. To, and, he, and he did. He went off to the Father. He bowed his head, and he said this, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering pass before me. This is perhaps the greatest prayer in all the Bible. Because what Jesus is saying is, if it's your will, God, I don't want this. This hurts. I don't want it. Take it away. Now would be a good time. That's a real prayer. That's an honest prayer. I prayed that prayer last year when my dad unexpectedly passed away. Uh, I got a call about 4.30 in the morning from my, uh, woken up out of a sound sleep. My mom was on the other line and she said, Andy, can you meet us at the hospital? Your father's having a heart attack, and the paramedics are here. And so, about eight minutes later from getting that phone call, I was standing in the emergency room. I don't remember those eight minutes, but you can imagine how I was feeling. Adrenaline was pumping, body was sweating, main, mind was racing, and I went to the attendant, and I asked to find out where I could find my father. And she said she had no record of him at the hospital. So then on top of that, now I'm frantic. I think I'm, I think I'm at the wrong hospital. I call Suzanne, and she said, no, the ambulance just went down Route 9. It'll be there in a minute. So we wheeled my father in and brought him in a different entrance and wheeled him into a small room with a lot of doctors and a lot of nurses and a lot of technology. And 
and they set up two chairs in the hallway for my mother and I. And in between praying with each other and trying to encourage my mom, I prayed this prayer, and it was guttural, and it was from a deep place. It was, God, take this. Take this from my father. Heal him. Take this suffering from my mother. Take this from me. I don't want it. Take this now. Take it. God always answers prayer. God always answers prayer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's later. About an hour later, the doctor came out and, and told us that my father had passed away. And at, at that point, the prayer became, God, give us the grace to endure this. Give us the strength to honor you in the days and weeks ahead. That's what Jesus prayed. I don't want this. Let this cup pass before me, but not my will, Lord. Yours be done. Let, let your will be done. See, the goal of prayer is not to get God to change his mind. God is always where he should be. Sometimes we're over there or we're over there, but God wants us to be right here. The goal of prayer is to get us to change our mind, get our perspective to be on God's, to get our thoughts to be his, our prayers to be his and you know that prayer is working when you are alongside of God where he wants you to be and you're glad for it, even amidst the circumstances, even amidst what's going on around you. You're, you're close to God and you're glad for it. That's when you know prayer is working, even amidst your suffering. Because when that happens, you become more sensitive. Your antennas become more alert. Your eyes become more open. Your heart becomes more soft to those that are walking through similar suffering. And you know that you, your desire to look them in the eyes and say, you're not somewhere I haven't been. Let me tell you how my God got me through the untimely death of a parent. Let me tell you how my God got me through a divorce. Let me tell you how my God got me through my battle with cancer. Let me tell you how my God got me through bankruptcy. My God is big. And then your sensitivity is there to help pray with somebody else who's walking through something similar. Are you suffering? Pray. The second question is this, are you happy? Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Not all of us is su are suffering. Some of us are going through some really good times. Uh, some of us are getting engaged to people that we like. I mean, it's a really good time in their lives. One of the things that Suzanne and I get to do is we get to go through premarital counseling with young couples who are at the start of their lives together, their covenant with God and with each other. And it's just an amazing experience, and it helps strengthen our marriage, and we just enjoy it. And we always get a kick out of the, the, the curriculum that we go through together, and we get to the point where we can encourage them on how to resolve conflicts in a healthy way. And invariably, the young, young couple who's just starting out said, that, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense, and it sounds like it's great, but we don't really need it because we don't argue very much. And Suzanne and I are like, <laughs> but you will. You're going to need this. But people are going through some good times. They're, 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 they're getting pregnant and having babies. They're having blessings and additions to their, their, their family. Uh, they're getting new jobs and promotion and taking on new responsibility. Some people are going through some really good times. And... The, the Greek word for cheerful is, is saleto. The P is silent. Everyone say that, saleto. And the original definition of saleto is this, to play with stringed instruments. So I think what James is saying to us here is that as we experience joy and happiness and saleto, cheerfulness, 
um, at what God has done in our lives, we should give God a concert. Uh, I'll break out into this in the car every now and again when I'm alone, uh, or in the shower, and the water bill reflects it. I see this a lot in, my, in, in, our, in our eight-year-old daughter, Olivia. She's just by nature fun-loving and loving and cheerful, and I love having her around for many, many reasons, but that's one, because as she grows and starts to uh, learn and uncover the plan that God has for her life and the blessings that he's given her in gratefulness, in happiness, in cheerfulness, she just breaks out in song anywhere, all the time. She's given a concert to God all the time, and it's infectious, and I love it. We should celebrate God not strictly for the circumstances, because then we'll only do it when we get blessed, and we'll curse him or ignore him or do something else when, when times are tough. But we should celebrate and give him a concert for the grace that he gives us in and through our circumstances. So I think James is putting these two together in the same verse because he wants us to know that they're not mutually exclusive. We can be going through a season of some suffering and some downturn and still be cheerful, still be joyful. Uh, so I think the key is this. Stay close to God no matter your circumstances. You having a, good you having a bad time? Pray. You having a good time? Praise. But the key for both is the same. Stay close to God no matter your circumstances. The third question is this. Are you sick? Call. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Goes on to say, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. It finishes up by saying, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What James is saying here is that if you're sick, and it said, call on the elders of the church and they'll anoint you in the name of the Lord. If, if you're sick, you need to go to Jesus. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to Jesus first, and we're going to invite Jesus into that prayer. When Jesus walked the earth, sick people went to him and in some instances were carried to him by, by their friends. In one account, the roof of the building was ripped off and friends lowered their sick friend to Jesus all in the hopes that he would heal them and make them well. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says this, As he, meaning Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes we get sick, physically sick, physically weak, physically weary. And as God wills, folks who get physically sick uh, will be healed temporarily for two reasons. One, so that they will become more dependent upon God. So they don't think they're all that in a bag of chips, right? So that they grow ever more dependent upon God. But as we learned here, also so, so that God may be glorified through that healing. We believe in faith that God will heal some on this earth temporarily from their physical weakness and weariness so that that individual will grow more dependent upon God and God will be glorified through that healing. But sometimes people get sick, because of sin. Sometimes people get spiritually weak 
and weary, those areas of our life that we just haven't given over to God, those areas in our life that we just want to do our own way. And we recognize over time and experience that this is not what God has for us. This is not the best that God has for us. And that creates tension and stress and sometimes sleep deprivation and pressure and anxiety and can manifest itself physically, but it's the cause of those areas of our heart that we just haven't given over to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth, and he's speaking to them about the Lord's Supper, and he's encouraging them because some in the Corinthian church were not treating the Lord's table as they should. Um, they were kind of doing it as a check on a box. Uh, they weren't honoring God, and they weren't inspecting their own heart. Uh, they, weren't they were treating the Lord's Supper as any other meal. And he said to them this, if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. The same judgment of the folks who put him to death, you're eating and drinking upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Do you know the, the quality of your life, and in some instances, the duration of your life can be impacted by the spiritual weakness and weariness? And what is, what is James encourages us to do? Uh, to call, to call upon the elders of the church. With a thousand plus people in Valley Christian Church, it's why we have a staff of, of pastors and spiritual leaders and elders. Um, you need to call, uh, but uh, to pray for each other, to pray for each other um, uh, and to anoint you with oil. Just a word about the oil. The oil is just a symbol. It's kind of like the bread and the cup in, at the Lord's table or the water in baptism. There's nothing magical about the oil. It's a symbol and it's a symbol that's used to draw us and encourage us to focus more, not on ourselves, not on the oil, but on God. When Jesus healed folks in the Bible, and we read about him in Scripture, we refer to them as miracles. They touched his cloak and were instantly healed. He spit in some mud and put it in the eyes of a blind man, and he was healed. He spoke a word, and a servant who was miles away was healed. We hear about them and we refer to them as miracles, but sometimes today we get sick and we forget that Jesus still heals. Jesus still speaks. Jesus still rules. Jesus still reigns. You know, there's a family in our church that's near and dear to God and pretty special to us too, and I was talking to the, 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 the mother recently, and she was recalling for me a, a quick conversation she had with her three-year-old son in the car, and I said, ooh, that's good. I just may take that, and here you go. She was in the car with her three-year-old, and three-year-old said, Mommy, what do you think Jesus is doing right now? And she said, no, I don't know. I, I think he's probably working. And there was some silence, and then the boy said, w What do you think he's doing, Ma? You, you think he's fixing things? And she thought, she said, Yeah, I think he's fixing things. And then there was a longer period of silence, and the boy said this, Wow, I guess a lot of things are broken, huh? Jesus did heal, Jesus does heal, and Jesus will heal. It, it is so encouraging for us uh, as pastors to hear when folks tell us about answered prayer, about folks that we've been praying for to be healed, and they are. Those are miracles, and they happen today, every day. Um, the question is not if God heals, but when. You know, there's a group of, of individuals, all family members, that 
usually come to the start of our weekend celebration, our Thursday night gathering. My wife and I and some of the leaders in the church have had an opportunity to pray with them. And they pray for each other, pray for family members, pray for coworkers, pray for neighbors. They've even invited some of the folks that we've prayed for, and we've got a chance to meet them, and it's been a great joy. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with them, and they told me this. You know that gentleman that we were praying for that was in that coma? Well, he emerged, and he started talking, and the doctor, and he started getting stronger, and the doctor said, they think he's going to make it. Like, oh, praise God, hallelujah, thank you for sharing that. But you know that woman we were praying for was battling that disease? Well, she succumbed to it, and she passed away. And they're like, oh, so sorry. And then the Lord dropped something in, in my spirit, and I said, yeah, you know, right, that's right. And when we got together and we huddled around, I said, Let, let's connect these dots. You see, the gentleman in the coma, he got a temporary miracle. He got a temporary healing in this life. And that is a miracle. And the woman who passed away, she got a, a miracle in eternity. As believers in Jesus Christ, she's spending eternity with her father in heaven. See, that is the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is that God so loved the world that he gave his very best. While we were sinners and didn't care about him, he gave his very best. He gave us Jesus. In the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus humbled himself to take the form of a man, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect and sinless life, and then to lay that life down for you and for me so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we would be able to approach God at all, and so that we would be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. That is the greatest miracle. See, in heaven, there's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more chemo. There's no more radiation. There's no more surgeons. There's no more medicine. Not because any of those things are bad, but because they're all the result of death. And death is the result of sin. And when Jesus comes back, sin will be conquered. And there will be no more mourning. There will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. Are you sick? Physically? Spiritually? Call. The fourth question is this. Do you trust God? Do, do you trust prayer? Then never give up. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Goes on to say, Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. If there was Halloween around the time of Elijah, little boys would be, would be dressing up like Elijah. Elijah was, Elijah was a superhero, you know? Uh, Elijah, prophet, was close to God. And that's why James is writing here, Elijah, as human as we are, uh, prayed and, 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 and never gave up. He prayed and never gave up. He prayed earnestly. What that means is no baby toe in the water. He, Elijah was close to God. Elijah prayed with all of himself to God. We show what we believe in by demonstrating what we're committed to, and Elijah did that with God. Do you want to know if someone has faith that prayer can heal? Do you want to know if someone has faith that pr prayer can heal? I'll tell you how you can know. They pray. They pray. They pray, and they never give up. You have faith that these chairs will hold you, so you use them. It's the same with prayer. You have faith that prayer will heal you, so you pray. 
Our faith is not in the person that's praying. It's not in the eloquence of their prayer. It's not in the oil that's used for anointing. It's in the one that we direct the fervent, earnest, faithful, healing prayer to. Our trust is in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. Jesus told his disciples many parables, and I want to just summarize one for you, but I want to bring it to your attention because I think it most poignantly describes what James is talking about here. The parable is called the parable of the persistent widow, and I'll, I'll just summarize the parable here, but let me give you the first line as Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says this in Luke 18, verse 1. He says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up, that they should always pray and never give up. Um, it's about an, a persistent widow and an unjust judge, a judge who didn't fear God or regard man, and this widow wanted to come, have this judge hear her case to give her justice, and he kept putting her off and putting her off and putting her off, and she kept coming, persistent, uh, steadfast, tenacious. And one translation of this parable says the judge has had enough. And he said, this, this woman's going to drive me crazy. So he finally heard her case. He gave her justice. And Jesus is telling this, this parable to the disciples, saying, how much more your heavenly Father, who hears his children call out to him day and night, pray and never give up. And then the last line of this parable, I think, really speaks to what we're talking about. It's, it's found in verse 8b. It says this. Jesus said to his disciples, when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find faith on the earth? I don't think it does this verse any injustice if I add a word to it. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find real faith on the earth? After all, that's what we've been talking about over these last eight weeks in this message series in the book of James. Making our faith work. It's a blueprint for making our faith work. Putting our faith in action. Making our, our, our beliefs match our behavior. Making our confessions match our convictions. Uh, making our audio match our video. The tech guys in the back, they love that one, right? But when we, when we present our video to God, we want it to say it's got integrity. It's got character. Our walk matched our talk. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Jesus tells us that we should always pray and never give up. We should always pray and never give up. And after all, real faith is something. Real faith moves something. Real faith believes something. It builds something. It says something. You know in the, in the New Testament when it says believe unto the Lord, that word believe means to commit to. We show what we believe in by demonstrating what we commit to. I believe in my wife. I'm never going to give up on her. I believe in my kids. I'm never going to give up on them. I believe in my God. I am never going to give up on him. We show what we believe by, by demonstrating what we commit to. Um, and, and real faith offers something. It's something that we can be demonstrable and operational. Do you trust prayer? Then you will never give up. And the final question is this. Who has wandered? James encourages us to go get them. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It almost seems like this is oddly placed, but I'll tell you why in a minute. Have you ever been, you ever wandered? Have you ever been lost? Uh, maybe hiking in the woods and you got off track, or maybe you're in a bad cell signal and GPS wasn't working, you're behind the wheel, and you just got off 
the beaten path and you got lost. Uh, I remember one time vividly for us, we were on our honeymoon 18 glorious years ago. And we were at Disney World, the happiest place on earth, and we had a great time on our honeymoon. But one day, I remember specifically, uh, we were walking around the Magic Kingdom, and my wife and I at the same time saw this little boy, six, seven years old, and he was alone. And he had this look on his face like he was lost. So we both walked up to him, knelt down beside him, and uh, we asked him, are you okay? Are you lost? And um, we introduced ourselves, and, and we asked what his name was, and we asked him if he was lost, and he said, Yes, and we found out quickly he was from the UK because he had this awesome accent. And he said, I've lost me mom. <laughs> and we said, oh, buddy, we're not going to leave you. We're going to find your mom. Sh I'm sure she's close by. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Hey, can you help us? Help, to help us describe your mom. What did she look like? And he's like, oh, she's, she's got brown curly hair, and, well, she's a bit portly. Oh, <laughs> Well, okay, buddy. Well, I make sure when we find your mom, we're not going to let her know that you described her as portly. Everything's going to be okay. And just like what normally happens at Disney, people come out of the wall and the sky and the ground, and they're all like, yeah, we have her mom, and she's, in this, and she's looking for him, and he's looking for her. We're going to put them together, and everything worked out great. But if you ever wandered, it's a, it's a bad feeling. There's three main ways we can wander. We can wander theologically, morally, and relationally. Theologically says, I know what the Bible says, but I don't really believe it. I know the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God. I think he's a good, he's a good man, did a lot of good things, but I, I'm not really, I'm struggling. I, I'm not struggling with believing it. That's wandering theologically. We can wander morally. We can say, I know what the Bible says, and I believe it to be the truth. I just don't care. It just feels so good. I'm going to do my own thing and go my own way. We can wander morally. And we can also wander relationally. Life works best when we're in, o in obedience to God and in community with each other. And when we leave that community of like-minded people and we go off on our own. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about moving from one Bible-believing church to another. That's, that's not wandering. I'm talking about leaving a, a community of believers and going off on your own. That's when that sheep goes off on, her, on his or her own and, goes and, and gets lost and wanders. And a, and a lost sheep, a wandering sheep, is a dead sheep because the wolves end up finding that sheep. Wandering theologically, morally, and relationally. Why is James talking to us about getting folks who are wandering? And I, I think it's, it's because of this. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. That means everything that's in the scriptures is for our benefit, to teach us so that, so that we learn the lessons of the past, and we don't make the same mistakes. So if that's what Scripture is there for, let's, let's go back to the past. And, and, and I want to take you back to the book of Judges. And this is when the, um, the people of Israel had seen the miracles that God had performed for them, had seen the ten plagues that he had put upon the, the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh and, and the land, and, 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 and seen them bring the people of Israel out of slavery, and, and, and through the wilderness and through the Red Sea into the promised land. And, and, and what struck me from the book of Judges was this verse, and I share it with you now. It's in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and it says this, After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. This is not in two generations, not in three generations, but in one generation. The world says to us, 
That person who's wandering, not my problem, not my responsibility, not my job. And James is encouraging us and God is telling us to go get them. Because if we don't, we can end up like this. It's because in one generation, we didn't tell them. We didn't serve them. We didn't love them as God loved us. Is someone wandering? Let's go get them. If we've got an inroads to them, if we've got a relationship with them, if we've got some investment in them, it's our responsibility, James is telling us. We need to go get them. So five questions that James is illuminating for us that need to really be asked of us and from us. Are you suffering? You need to pray. You need to pray to God first and open up our suffering to each other. You cheerful? We need to praise. So if you're having a bad time, pray. Having a good time, praise. Both of them require us being close to God, no matter the circumstances. Are you sick, physically weak, weary, spiritually weak or weary? You need to call. You need to call upon the elders of the church. Life works best when we're in obedience to God and in community with each other. You trust prayer, then you'll never give up. You'll never give up. Uh, there's something to be said about endurance and steadfastness and tenacity in the Christian walk. You trust prayer, a characteristic of someone who trusts that prayer heals, they pray and they never give up. And is someone wandering? We need to go get them. We need to go get them. We need to bring them back. We need to scan the landscape and make sure that the flock is together. What's going on here? Constantly asking those questions. We do that and then we, as well as the other eight, eight messages and the other verses and, and uh, ideas that James, Pastor James, has brought out uh, from this book, we do that, then we follow the blueprint for making faith work. I'm going to ask, would you bow your heads with me? Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom we have heard throughout this series, providing us with a blueprint for making faith work. We thank you for the younger half-brother of Jesus who clearly and boldly teaches us that faith without works is dead and dead faith does not work. Thank you for the encouragement of these verses that real faith is always accompanied by action and that practical wisdom from Pastor James to match our beliefs to our behavior and our confession to our convictions. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we as individuals and as a Valley Church family would be changed by the wisdom and, and that we've heard in this series and boldly desire to follow this blueprint so that we can look more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.